1: Welcome to First Edition. On this episode, it's kind of a twofer today. Get to talk to Joshua Bodwell of Godine Press about a book we both love that he and Godine Press are reissuing, have reissued as part of their non-parallel series. It's a memoir with a backstory called The Orchard by Adele Crockett Robertson. I discovered it independently a few years ago. If you listen to Book Riot Podcast, you've heard me rave about it maybe nonsensically maybe it seems out of scale but i found a fellow traveler on the orchard timeline and joshua has put his money where his job is i guess and there's a new edition you can find the link in the show notes it's called the orchard by del crockett roberts and the new edition is out from godine press And Joshua joins me to talk about this book, why we love it, why you might like it, but also the process of reissuing a book, what it really takes, and how you market it, and you really reviving something. So uh, another look behind the nuts and bolts of the publishing industry, um, a labor of love and a labor of passion, and a book I think a lot of you would really like, so hope you'll stick around. That's first edition today.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. You'll only cross these blades once in a page turning new tale of revenge strategy and so many lies. Best selling Red Tower Books is releasing its next year's read that will capture your imagination and keep you guessing until the end. May Corlin's Five Broken Blades tells an intricate high stakes tale of five total strangers united in a plot that will test their strength, wits, and courage. Each has their reasons, all have secrets. But while it's easy to portray a stranger, it's not so simple to stab a friend or a lover, okay, in the back. Now these five blades must choose between vengeance and one another. Pick up five broken blades by Mae Corlin for a thrilling, adventurous tale filled with risk, romance, adventure, and Oh, so many lies. The relationships in it are complex and nuanced and involve everything from friends to enemies found in biological family and lovers and more. Thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publishers of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode.
1: Joshua, tell us who you are, where you're from, what you guys do. I am Joshua Bodwell, the editorial
2: director at Godine and Black Sparrow Press.
1: So I'm having Joshua on today. The excuse is to learn about the process of bringing a book back to life, how this goes. Um, Godin has a series that Joshua's going to tell us about a little bit. But Joshua and I got connected because, and I guess I don't actually know how this came to you, I have been talking about this particular book, The Orchard by Adele Crockett Robertson, for several years now. I picked it up by accident. And my raving about it made its way to Joshua because i had found out that Godin had put out a new version of it. It's been out of print for multiple decades. I think there was a paperback version in 96, 97, but after that, it's been out of print for 20 some odd years. And I I didn't know why this particular new paper book came out. I was thrilled to see it. Joshua got in contact with me saying, actually, we're the ones that put it out thank you so much for mentioning it. And I said, you have to come talk to me about this book and what happened. So let me tell my side of the story and how I first came to it. Then I'm going to have Joshua tell how the book came across him and then what he decided to do with it. I read this book by mistake. I was reading another book um, about apples, the history of apples, as it turns out. I'll read almost anything. And I was paging through the bibliography and I saw a book that was a memoir of someone running an apple orchard. And I must have written down the title wrong because this is a memoir of that. But I thought this was like in the 19th century, was I was expecting to be a memoir of someone running an apple orchard in the 19th century. But I picked up the orchard by Del Crocker Robinson. I got a used copy, got a hard copy. It was like four bucks. And I fell in love with the book. I think I'll have Joshua tell us what the book is about. And then I got interested in, and I've talked about it ever since. I've recommended it a bunch of times. Um, when I first got on the, on the Book Riot podcast, it like started selling out in the places where you could buy used books, even just 25 <laughs> or 50 people trying to get it was enough to find it. So that's how I came across it. Joshua, what is how did The Orchard come across your mind? How, how did it even enter your radar?
2: Yeah, let, let me back up to the very beginning, actually. It came across my desk that you were talking about it from good old Google Alert. Okay, I I had set up a Google alert on Adele Crockett Robinson, very unique name, right? And it popped up, you were doing your holiday recommendations. So, you know, I clicked on that, listened to the podcast. And then it was immediately evident during that conversation, your co-host was immediately teasing you when you brought up the orchard. So I said, oh, there's some, there's more story here. And then I sort of peel back that this has been an obsession of yours that sounded a lot like my own personal obsession with it. So in 2017, my daughter was 15 years old at the time and obsessed with going to thrift stores, but you know, no driver's license. So on the weekends, I would often drive her to thrift stores. And then you're just, you know, you're doing the dad thing, you're hanging out, you're killing an hour. And this particular thrift store we were in down in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is, you know, not far from the Ipswich, Massachusetts setting of the book, they did have like a one bookcase in the back with, you know, $1 paperbacks. And it was mostly garbage, you know, it was mostly like, you know, 15 copies of Da Vinci Code or something. But I saw The Orchard on the Spine and I think like you, I'm an Apple guy. So I just pulled that down. I so I pulled down the paper the paperback. The paperback. I was yeah. showing him my hardback. We're the paperback
1: on Zoom. Yeah. You
2: know, I pulled that out and it has this beautiful John Updike quote on the cover. Updike Unbelievable. You know, lived in Ipswich for a long time. That's where he oh, he wrote First Rabbit book there. He wrote Couples there, some of his best short stories, I think there. So and it says on the front, brave and beautiful tells us who we are and where we live. Just wonderful, you know. So I sat there for an hour while my daughter shopped for, you know oversized jeans and big goofy sweaters and just read for an hour and was hooked, probably like you. And not only hooked because the writing is beautiful and compelling, but also that in the book's introduction, you find out the whole story of how the book came to be, which is its own epic odyssey. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, we can maybe tag team telling the story of it. I mean, it's so funny because it's a book... It's a book about reclamation. Like, mm. there's a we're we're going to be doing this for like three levels because you and I are talking <laughs> yeah. about doing our own kind of reclamation as publishers or pundits or critics or avid fans of books and reading. Right? We we came across this book, we discovered it. So Adele Crocker Robertson's daughter, after her mother has died, finds this manuscript under the bed. I, I don't know if it's literally under the bed, but it's metaphorically like under stacks the bed. of
2: phone books and papers.
1: Yeah, almost worse yeah. than under the bed. It's a bunch of, yeah. bunch of detritus you might just pitch out when you're getting rid of yep. stuff like this. And her mother had become a journalist later in life. So she was a writer of this town in Ipswich where she was she was born there and died there. And her daughter remembers this time of her life when her mom was writing in a manuscript, sort of this interstitial time between well, well, something, she she didn't know that much about what she was doing, if anything, if I recall. Yep. And she reads it, and I guess. I don't know this. Maybe you can tell me more about this. Begins the process of bringing it into the publishing world because the book eventually comes out in 1995. It's published by Metropolitan Books. With that point, was a imprint of Holt, um, which Holt is still around. it's an imprint of someone else. It was. It was a. You know, it's a hardback with a John Update quote. I have no idea how well it sold. There was a paperback version, though the paperback has a new cover, which tends to tell you it didn't sell all that great. And this and the story within the story is this time in her mother's life. So it's at what 1932 to 1934, when she's returned to her family's apple farm just outside of Ipswich and tries to run it by herself for two years during the depression to see if she can keep her family's apple orchard alive. And it's simple and sad and beautiful, and a I guess a successful failure of its own kind. I don't want to spoil it because I think part of like understanding what happens to orchard into Kitty that was Adele Crocker-Robinson's sort of family name is so amazing because she herself is trying to keep this thing that's important to her family alive.
2: Yeah. Really to her beloved father, right? That, that That's echoing throughout. And I know that must've hooked me, you know, particularly that day with my 15 year old daughter there in this thrift store. So that father daughter piece of it, you know, resonated with me a lot when yeah. I started for sure. Yeah.
1: And so at what point did you think I'm going to, like were you working on this series before at what point did you wait wait i should take a look at what's up with this book and maybe we could do something with it
2: yeah so 2017 i was not at Godin yet i arrived at Godin, started working on projects for them in 2018 and then arrived there full-time in 2019. okay and pretty early on one of the things we wanted to do was work on the godine non-pareil series and that was a series that had existed at the house for decades Godin's turned 50 in 2020, mm. started in 1970 by David R. Godin. And um, I'm not sure exactly the year the Nonpareil imprint started, but it it started with the best intentions of bringing back, you know, out of wonderful, out of print books. There was a time period when William Maxwell was completely out of print and it was the Godin mm. Nonpareil that brought back all the books before, you know, vintage contemporaries said, oh yeah, maybe we should be doing that, you know? So it has fantastic books in it, but it had been, no one had been minding the shop, so to speak, for a decade or so. So it, it was kind of languishing and just things that seemed like they should be in paperback ended up there. And we had a new vision for it that was way more focused in two basic silos. One, something like The Orchard, where we bring it back, it's a full... Full book that has existed before, and then we add a really passionate introduction or afterward to it. So, our new edition has an afterword by Jane Brox, mm. who's a gorgeous writer. She grew up in the Merrimack Valley, wrote three books about her family's farm there. So, when I read, I read all of Jane's books and knew her, and the next time I saw her after reading The Orchard, I said, You must know this book, The Orchard. And she said, oh, my God, it's one of my favorite books.
1: She was, did know it. OK, that oh, yeah. was one of my questions. Yeah,
2: she knew it immediately. And I, it is one of those books where you, when you read it, you kind of know, oh, there are other readers that I know that must love this, you know? So then the other kind of book in the Nonpareil series is the first two we did like this were collecting James Allen McPherson's nonfiction, you know, McPherson, the first black writer to win the Pulitzer for fiction, incredible short story writer, but also an essayist, I think on the level of like James Baldwin and Didion, Mm -hmm. you know, so no one had ever gathered together, selected Mm -hmm. his nonfiction. We did that and we did Ambidi's first collection of nonfiction, all previously published work for the most part but never gathered before all right. of her writing about writers and her writing about artists. So those are the two sort of approaches of the umbrella gotcha. series sort of gathered best of and also books that have existed but introduced in a new way, you know, to we invited Hermione Lee to write an introduction to Mavis Gallant's work, you know, the you connect and sometimes you're just, you know, you're reading a Paris Review interview with an author, and they're obsessing about some book. So you can track them down and say, "Hey, you know, do you want to bring that back? Do you want to in- introduce that right. better than sane by Alison Rose in the series?" We had just reached out to Porchista Kaktor, this really great. Iranian American writer that we love and we respect her taste. And she mm. said, oh my God, I make my students buy, you know, use copies of Better Than Saying by Alison Rose. And they're like 40 bucks each, you know, would, would you right. bring it back in paperback? <laughs> so once we were working on that series, you know, there was not only things that we would cook up in the future, but there was my sort of, you know, beloved list or what's out of print, what's what can we get the rights to? And thus started the odyssey. <laughs> Of getting the rights to the orchard
1: so i'm guessing this is a particularly difficult one i would guess for a couple of reasons the original author has passed away the houses have collapsed and merged and things have all changed around um the book came out in 1995. i'm old now so 1995 doesn't seem that long to me but it's long it's a long enough where in
2: publishing the, yeah
1: the the agent the editor we don't know who's alive, we don't know who's around, who's retired, who's on twitter that you can dm, who has an email that anyone <laughs> knows, like all this kind of stuff i could imagine. There were no ebook or audiobook versions of it at the time, so you know there's a there's contractual stuff that's older i'm guessing. So i'm guessing some these are all going to be different in their own way to approach, but how do you go about bringing something back that the the rights have lapsed or it's out of print? Like what do you do? Where do you start with something like
2: this is, a, sometimes it's really easy. You know, sometimes even if the author isn't alive, there's a direct connection to an agency that handles the estate, you know, something like that. We just brought that guy Davenport's the geography of the imagination. He's still represented by an agency. Easy. You know, guy's Done. been dead a long time, but that's easy. This one is not, It's it was particularly difficult, but it's also not a total outlier, meaning right. there are You know, if you want to do something that's been out of print for a while and is older, this is the case. You know, at the very best, people are retired. In, In a lot of cases, they've passed. So it takes sleuthing. My editorial colleague and I, Celia Johnson, we always you know, joke about starting a private eye agency after we're done with editorial work. So I used to be a journalist. So, you know, I do have some of those instincts. So when I found or how I found Betsy, who is the daughter of Adele Crockett Robinson, Betsy, the one that found this amongst the Mm -hmm. phone books and, you know, did all that initial legwork in the nineties, she's been living for years in Santa Barbara, California, who, you know, who would have guessed from Ipswich to Santa Barbara, but, and this just connects to the book so much. I think she's Kitty's daughter. She was serving on uh, a committee through the town of Santa Barbara. And I think it was around like seal habitat or something in Santa Barbara. So you know, through some layers of Googling, I found, well, this is a pretty unique name, you know, Betsy Robertson Kramer. Again, three names. You know, so I reached out to the town and to the head of that committee. And then through these layers, got her email address and tracked her down that way. And then we got on the phone. Yeah. So if she, you know, God bless her. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm sure, was she thrilled to hear from you? I can only, it feels like a labor of love. I can only imagine if I was in her shoes to have someone reach back and say, we're still interested in your story, your mom's story, your family's orchard story.
2: Yes, she was thrilled. And then once Jane Brox wrote her afterward, Betsy said what I think has been one of the most rewarding things in this whole Nonpareil series. She read Jane's afterward and said, Now I finally feel like my mother's book is done. Hmm. You know, because her mother had left the manuscript unfinished. We can talk about that. That you know, she had this surge where, in the 1950s, over 12 months, she remembered back to the 30s and wrote this manuscript. But she didn't really end it. It ends on something of a cliffhanger. It just right. And and Betsy wrote a beautiful epilogue to it doing her best to sort of, you know, tie up some of the loose ends. But then Jane did something really, she just took that another step, I think, in sort of imagining herself into Kitty's world. So for Betsy to feel like there was this closure to this project that she started in the 90s, you know, it's just just so beautiful and rewarding.
1: You, you begin the rights process. Then you start thinking about how to package it, how to do a cover design, how to release it, when to release it. What are the other considerations into bringing something sort of—I don't want to say dead, but I don't know what else to say, Joshua. Kind of back to print, into print, back in
2: certainly right. reviving it. Yeah, we're certainly putting the panels on it. It's there, and there's sort right. of a faint pulse, if you will. If we're going to use yeah, yeah, those analogies. Well, it was you know, Betsy was able to like go into her storage in her garage and find the original contract, you know, which was you know looked like it came off a typewriter. Then again, starting to play those games, she was reaching out. To, I want to say the first agent that worked on it was passed, but then there was another that worked on it who was retired. And no. then this process of trying to reach through Metropolitan slash Henry Holt through those layers. We started in 2019. I have to look back. I don't think we wrapped up the paperwork into well into 2021 it was a couple right. years of just constantly reminding them. and. You, it publishing is funny as modern and slick as it is and now we have all this you know metadata online and all this even a book from 1995 as you're saying doesn't seem that long ago but people got to go to like paper files and find contracts and find old statements and so it's arduous yeah with this one we really had to be a squeaky wheel and just right. continually make the case frankly that the rights should be reverted to the estate
1: the right reverts to Betsy, and then she yep. signed a new contract with you. Is basically yeah. how.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was just sometimes the folks were engaging with; they're able and willing to do this. In this case, I'm not sure how old Betsy is, but you know, this wasn't in her wheelhouse. Like to get on yeah, emails, right. to get on phone calls. Now, so I was passionate enough where I said, "Okay, I'll do this. I'll just right. devote a couple hours a month to being the squeaky wheel on this." Right. And basically, all we were doing was just trying to get someone to listen to most publishing contracts have a caveat within them that if at a certain point a book starts selling X amount of units, a minimum amount of units across two royalty cycles, rights may be reverted. So if you're okay. you know 20 years out on a book and you know your book sells five copies a year, you can go to your publisher and use that sort of trapdoor and get right. out. So that's right. uh, we just wanted that all nicely. Buttoned up, sure. <laughs> so then, well, Betsy, I can't yes. imagine
1: it selling any books a year. I mean, it's out of. I mean, th- did they even have royalties? To, I mean, when was the last real royalty? Wait, I, I just a lot of the conversation
2: was a lot of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Was, of the conversation yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, <laughs> I can see why. It be, between it being sort of, I don't know if there's some sort of BC era for publishing where things started to get digitized, but ninety five was in that. Before uh, before digital era, for most intensive purposes, sure, they've got to do their own excavation. You're like Woodward and Bernstein, like going through files, <laughs> right? Lower and stakes, and they don't yeah. have they don't have financial incentive to care because they're not going to get any money out of it. No, this is not an author who they're worried about their next book and the no. relationship with them or the age and the editor are all long gone. So they're just doing it as I don't know the largess of you know maybe wanting something or not caring or wanting to stop being pestered. All of those can be mot- motivating factors, I'd imagine.
2: I think it was they wanted to stop being pestered by me at the end. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Because you're right. They didn't have any motivation. They didn't want to repackage it and bring it out. They didn't have any motivations. So, And everyone is busy, which I respect more than anyone. So it was just a low, low priority. And I'm sure there were multiple low level, you know, people in the rights department who would say, you deal with this guy, you know, shifting from desk to desk. (laughs) So yeah, it was a bit of a celebration when it finally came through to, I mean, to your question about when can we publish it, all that. You know, at one point, I didn't know if we ever would be able to. It just seemed like we were in this, you know, groundhog day of rights conversations. So I didn't believe it in, until we finally, you know, could pop the cork when we had that right. official letter, you know, with the rights right. reverted to Betsy. Then it was easy. It was like, how fast can we publish this? What's the next fall list we can put it on? Frankly, <laughs> you know, we wanted it to come out in apple season. And then the packaging was easy too. And that the nonpareil, we'd spent a lot of time. You know, coming up with a brand look for the series. Right. So then yes. it became a matter of just finding the imagery. Yeah. I, I found the earlier editions a little moribund in their packaging. You know, it's almost like a horror novel it's set in an orchard.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it almost looks like a '90s Cormac McCarthy packaging. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know what well they're said. doing. It looks like a horror. You're right. Yeah. It looks like these apples are going to kill you, and the ghosts are going to get you because it's yeah. it's this very Depression era almost screen print kind of vibe going yeah. on i i don't know i do you know anything about how the book performed initially did you get any sense of what they did or didn't sell
2: in hardcover it did do well from and this is anecdotal from yeah, betsy sure. you know from the daughter that's anecdotal okay. and then strangely and i'm sure it did well in some other countries but she always brings up how well it did in germany really yeah it was really Okay. yeah and there were two paperback editions there was first a bantam trade yeah um and then a dial press. I read the dial
1: one. Um,
2: when uh, I first I don't found think
1: it, I put because I don't think Bantam was part of Random House at that. Anyway, my my conglomeration timeline can be a little. It's a it's a many tendriled.
2: I know that uh, too well, frankly, animal. because that belabored the rights conversation was yeah. that it had gone these different places at different right. times and.
1: So I, I guess I want to back up just a second because we we skipped a bit of a step from you picking up this book, liking the book, kind of filing it away, having it to a place where you are the publisher that has a series sort of tailor-made for a book like this. Yeah. What's the discussion around a book like this, like whether to do it I'm not? I'm sure it's a target-rich environment. There's a lot of fascinating books that are out of print. I'm sure you have a lot of things mm-hmm. that come across your transom. What gets you excited about a book like this? I guess I understand a little bit more packaging, you know, a William Maxwell collection or something. That makes... A little bit more sense to me. You have a name you can hook it on. You mm-hmm. have, you know, a little bit of a, a grain of sand around a which a pearl can form, where something like this doesn't have. So, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this particular book, or what do you look for when you're really looking for something to put the paddles on yeah. rather than sort of a, you know, other material by a writer or a, a name that has a little bit more of a profile?
2: Yeah, good question. This one, you know, there are certainly some name people in the series. You mentioned. And BD and you just mentioned yeah. Avis William Maxwell. This one really hit a sweet spot for us regionally. You know, we're very mm-hmm. much a Boston-based publisher, and Ipswich is our backyard. You know, Updike used to get on the train and go down right. to the Museum of Fine right. Arts. And you know, it really is it's not necessarily a suburb of Biddeford, but it's a commuter town in, uh, into Boston rather. So that part of it was very appealing. You know, we've got a book coming next year, Robert olmstead Stay Here With Me, which is a his memoir of growing up on a New Hampshire dairy farm, you know, Olmstead's is a great novelist and he's really, he's known for his really muscular novels, but this New Hampshire dairy farm, you know, it, it's catnip for the Godine, you know, we're done. We published a lot of Donald halls, New Hampshire work, you know, so it mm-hmm. just, it fits the tone of the house really. And frankly, I mean, it's the passion piece. How does it fit for us? Like this is a book we can passionately sell. Yeah. yeah. You know, it doesn't, we, we can just as passionately sell William Maxwell and Ambedee because it's sincere, but there, there doesn't need to be a name with The Orchard because it is a book, and I'm preaching to the choir with you, that you right. press on people. Yeah. You know, you really, you press on people, not because it's the hot title that's being reviewed and all the mainstream. It's a book that, did you miss this? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And there's a certain pleasure in feeling like you've got a gem. Right. I can, I mean, it's even huge. as someone who just reads and recommends it without any skin in the game and not having to figure out what to put on the cover or what independent bookstore I can tell about it so they can put it in the window. Like there's something special to say, here's this book. And the thing that's both exciting and sad, kind of like the orchard's exciting and sad in its own way. Is like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of books like this. You, you yeah. know, there, there's so many books out there like this and it's exciting at the same time. Like, God, what have we missed? What else yeah. is out there? Yeah. Like, how did... But for misreading a bibliography, but for you not going into right. this back, like, what are, what was in the store next door right. b- between all the copas? That oh, I know. That haunts it, me. It yeah, so, it haunts it, me. This particular book, again, you have to be, I don't know that it's for everyone. I think it's beautifully written. I think it kind of makes it more beautiful that then Betsy has to come in and sort of separate that it's, because it is a story of unfinished business yeah. in a lot of ways. In the epilogue, she identifies kind of the core moment between Kitty and one of the men that's part of a family that supports her and tries to help her through this. It's a beautiful recognition that like, we connect with each other and we try to support and support the things we love. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes the book comes out and sometimes it gets great acclaim, but then the story's not over at the same time, Um, which is completely fascinating. I think to your point though, that it is satisfying
2: because there's something sort of fitting about Kitty that we fall in love with in this book, you know, her personality. Um, and I'm paraphrasing it, but she says at one point in the book essentially, like, no effort is in vain, you know, yeah, and right. there's just this sort of like Yankee pragmatic stream about you know, Vane, and that I love about her. That writing that book and you know, putting those pages under the phone books, like, that was enough. She didn't need to get a book deal and have a signing and a launch and be, you know, fed right. in and all that stuff. That wasn't why she did it. Yet she was so beloved in the community. You know, the day she died, the the flags at town hall flew at half I mean, mast. Wh- you, can't, know? you
1: can't make this stuff up, nah. man. Like nah. it's almost, there's a part of me. And again, it's, there's, there's anchoring bias because this is how I encountered the text. I almost am glad I didn't get the full kitty published. This is publishes this book in her lifetime in 1958 right? and it's sort of a standalone memoir and it's sort of complete like the whole other layers of the story makes it so much beautiful i mean that's easy for me to say without it's not my family but there is something to the unfinishedness that really speaks to um the beauty of it and she's a wonderful writer i have no sense of how much editing went into this sort of phone book document i'm sure there must have Mm -hmm. been some um but even that gives it a sort of sense of a There's an aura about this original manuscript, even reading it. uh,
2: Yeah, I don't either. That original editor has passed, so I haven't been able to ask that. I have read her daughter Betsy also gathered together some of her writing that appeared in the Ipswich Chronicle over the years. And I've read a bunch of those columns and they're quite exquisite. And I don't know that is a newspaper that would have had a particularly literary editor you know right. with the time and energy yeah. you know on a paper of that period to be you know fine tuning so my sense is that those were often printed as right. they arrived except for some copy editing maybe
1: so you mentioned that so this one of the ideas like okay where are we going to sell this book you're a pub, you have you have a mission but you also have pragmatic realities of like needing to make payroll and making the the numbers come out to some degree so you have this book that comes out what then do you you're, you're telling local booksellers about it how are you imagining how telling people about it now they have a new copy that can go out onto the world
2: yeah one of the most there's so many like little rewarding things and it's not like they're moving 100 units a week but one of the more rewarding places is there is actually a this re, i can't think of the name of an castle hill i think it's called but it's this very prestigious old mansion like house right on crane beach in ipswich so you you could it's the only thing sort of between kitty's far old farmhouse the old family mm. farmhouse and the ocean and the gift store there is selling you know a bunch of copies which That's is sort of wonderful when you think yeah and the house is still there you know obviously all the land all broken up and there's right. a few crab apple trees you know yes i've been there and walked around and Redid. made my Incredible. pilgrimage oh, yeah i made my pilgrimage down so so yeah i mean i think with whenever we have something where there is an explicit regional yeah. connection, you know, you always want to sort of start there and then build out in concentric circles, you know, yes, this is, has done well in Santa Barbara because of Betsy, <laughs> but, right. you know, you're not going to, you know, go to prairie lights in, in the middle of America right. first and say, this is the book for you. You know, you're going right. to, it's a very regional effort first. So New England first, and then building out from there, yeah. but you know, that's a blessing to have, frankly, not every book, you know, affords you that opportunity. Right. To build right. out.
1: Can you tell me anything about what What else do you want to say about the series? Other highlights or other stories from the series that people would find interesting or fascinating yeah. about how this works?
2: Well, one I want to say because you, you were just talking about like you don't know what's out there, which is yeah. great. You know, we don't know what we don't know. So I think now that the series is spinning up, this new sort of revamping of the series is spinning up. What's nice is that. Some people are coming to us. It hasn't been a fire hose, which is great. Yeah. But then also with these examples, we can also reach out to people that we admire and trust and just say to them, hey, you know, the door is open. You know, right. what are you interested in? We brought back Andre Debuse's first book, which was his only novel he wrote when he was a student mm. at Iowa called The Lieutenant, wrote in the 50s. And when I was I want to pull together some fresh blurbs for that and I reached out to Anthony Swafford, the author of Jarhead. And Tony gave a beautiful blurb for it. And then I said after, hey, you know, let me know if there's something that you think is overlooked or lost, you know. And sure enough, he pointed me to Wallace Terry's Bloods, which is a oral history of black soldiers in Vietnam. Amazing. So now we're in the process, you know, of getting that together. And I'm talk his son and widow are still alive and I'm in talks with them. And I wouldn't have gone looking for that. I wouldn't have known. Right. Um, yeah, was,
1: there's so much. There's yeah. no way to know. You just no way to know.
2: So that's a nice thing it's we're doing so now, sort of just reaching out. I think the most exciting thing right now in the decks is out in January was also a coincidence. I had gotten really into uh, Alec Wilkinson, who's been a New Yorker staff writer since the 80s, since 1980. And his first book, Midnight's is a piece of experiential journalism. He graduated from college, was playing in a band, not doing much, decided he would work for a year as a cop on Cape Cod. So this book Midnights is one year working as a cop on the midnight shift in 1975. So like it has more in common with like Andy Griffith and Mayberry than it does with like, you know, the cops TV show. And it's just, it's amazing. (laughs) So while we were working on that, I, I was aware that Alec was like a son to William Maxwell. He was how he got hired at the New Yorker and they were very close. And I just asked him offhand one day, Hey, do you think there's anything kicking around that was unpublished? That's interesting or, you know, uncollected. And he said, let me look. And then about two weeks later, he came back and he said, Oh yeah, there's a lot. So in January, we were putting out this book. The writer is an illusionist and it's the unpublished and uncollected William Maxwell. And Alec was he literally was going into boxes that had been packed mm. when Maxwell died you know so there's mm. stuff in here from his journals there's transcriptions of little notes that were on the corkboard above his desk you know it's a, whether you're a Maxwell fan or not but especially if you're a Maxwell fan it is amazing you know he's been dead for years now and no one thought there'd be any new Maxwell ever again
1: Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. This was really wonderful. I'm Man. so thrilled that there's a new copy, uh, a new version. There'll be a link in the show notes. There, you can go look at Godine, the Orchard, Adele Crockett, Robertson. I think if you like, if you listen to this show, you care enough to listen to this show it's worth checking out because now you know the story because there's this publishing story within a publishing story within a publishing story which yeah. is so remarkable to do so thanks to google that's the only time i'm going to say this for the alert system <laughs> to connecting us here um i'm sure they're listening in on a transcript right now um, uh, joshua we'll talk to you again sometime we got something else to talk about i yeah. love these reclamation projects so keep me in mind if you got a story um to come back in the future and we can yeah
2: talk thanks for your again. passion on the orchard
1: yeah, The Orchard. There it is. So fun. Uh, everyone else will talk to you later. Thanks so much to Joshua for joining us. Go check out The Orchard from Godine Press. Give it a whirl. i uh, will be a link in the show notes there, and you can find it many places. Books are sold. If you want to keep up with First Edition, try Instagram. Try our Substack newsletter. The links are in the show notes there. We're going to be back with a cross-promo It Books of January in January. That regular episode's going to be moving to the Book Riot podcast feed, but while we're transitioning over there, um, we'll be in both places for a little while. And until next time, read some more.